Good morning, once again. Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the book of Esther, chapter one, uh, chapter eight, rather. Ooh. Let's not go backwards. Let's move forward. Uh, chapter eight. So what we're actually going to do today is we're uh, uh, ending our sermon series in Esther today. It's the last one. Um, reason being is that I had planned one extra sermon in this particular series, but that means I would have to wait uh, next week. Nikki and I are gone at commissioning, and so I'd have to push it to the week after. Uh, and so rather than doing that, because um, I believe we can, we're going to get the book of Esther finished today. Um, and just as a, a, I suppose, a brief note, what I've tried to do in this particular book is show you that even though God's name is never mentioned, he's never prayed to, there's no angelic uh, intervention, there is no prophets, there's no miracles, that God has shown that he is greater than the circumstances that Jesus is, is greater uh, than all of the trials and suffering that we face. We just sang a song, uh, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And it says in that song, do you have trials? Are you heavy laden? What do you do? You go to Jesus because he is greater. And so that's what we've been looking at. Over the last few weeks, I just want to bring up a couple of topics that we've covered. We've said that Jesus is a greater king. Jesus has a greater way. Jesus is a greater bride. Jesus died a greater death. Jesus is a greater mediator. Jesus gives a greater identity. Jesus gives a greater joy. Jesus gives a greater path. And Jesus is a greater Esther. And that's what we've looked at this entire uh, last, this is, it will be the 10th sermon in this series. So over the last 10 weeks, we've looked at these particular topics. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the book of Esther, chapter Eight. And what we're looking at to set the scene, in fact, uh, uh, if you have chapter 8 open there, I invite you actually to look at the last verse of chapter 7, which ends uh, the story that we were in. Uh, so in case you want the backstory, uh, Haman had decided he wanted to kill all the Jews. He got the king to sign an edict. The edict went out. Haman's really happy. Uh, Esther finds out that she's marked for a death sentence. She goes in front of the king, risks her life. Uh, gets the king to come over to her house for a bit of a party. She invites Haman. Uh, they go to the party. Everything seems to go really well, and so Esther invites them back the next day for a secondary party. Uh, as that party is going well, uh, it says that the king had consumed uh, a lot of wine and alcoholic beverages. Uh, and so at that point, um, Esther stands up in the presence of the king, and he's like, this wicked Haman. And then Haman realizes that his entire life is about to become undone. Uh, and the end of that conversation ends with the king pointing to Haman and saying, let's hang him on the gallows that he made for Mordecai. Mordecai is over here, remember, the, the king's gate. That's where Mordecai sits, front row on my right. That's where Mordecai sits uh, by the king's gate. He says that instead of hanging Mordecai on these gallows, we're going to be hanging you instead. And so uh, verse 10 ends with this. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, and the wrath of the king abated. Yeah, you can give me. You're coming over here with me. All right. And so what's interesting I find about this is that last line. The wrath of the king did what? It abated. Now, uh, to abate means to get rid of, to drain away, to get rid of. The reason I know this, uh, what abatement means, uh, is because in a couple of the churches that Nikki and I have pastored over the f last few years of our lives, uh, there has been this little thing called asbestos, 
in most of the flooring. Now, apparently, someone thought uh, a, a few decades ago that it would be a fantastic idea to use poison as, uh, as some sort of flooring. I don't know why, but someone thought it was a great idea. Uh, the problem with that is when it is uh, by itself, not disturbed, and just sort of sitting under the carpets, it's not poisonous, it's not harmful, but as soon as you start taking up those carpets, it comes up with it and gets into your lungs and then starts to kill you, right? This is what asbestos is. Uh, we know this because there is only a single room in this building that we're in that doesn't have some form of asbestos glue. I'm finding this out the hard way. You're all fine, you're not gonna die. It's under the carpets, and as long as I don't start ripping up the carpets, you're not, nothing's going to happen to you. However, in order to get this taken care of legally, we have to do something called abatement. We have to get an outside company to come in. They seal the rooms they're working on. It looks like some sort of scene from a, from a sci-fi movie. It's a scary sort of thing. They wear the full uh, white hermetic suits. They've got the, with the little windscreen. It's like the little windshield. <laughs> Um, they've got the, like the purifier pack on their back and they come in like spacemen. <laughs> and they, they, they start taking it up and they abate, which means to remove. That's a really long way of explaining simply what abatement means. <laughs> then the wrath of the king abated. It means it's no longer a, a, a threat to anyone else. It means it's no longer going to impact anyone else. It means that the, the issue that we have is now gone. Does that make sense? And so the, the reason that we're f they're, they're focusing on this sentence is if you remember last week, if you either watched the live stream or you were here, last week we talked a lot about the wrath of God. We talked about how uh, the king's wrath here in this story is an imperfect wrath because he's an imperfect king. However, God's wrath is perfect because he is perfect. Uh, and so that wrath is poured out against those who sin or those who are in a state of sin. We read that uh, throughout the New Testament. Uh, we talked about how the wrath of God is mentioned more times than the love of God in the Bible. Uh, and so dealing with that wrath is something that we need to do. And so the reason why I find this particular line intriguing, that the wrath of the king abated, is that when sin is paid for, wrath is abated. And so, so here's what happens in evangelism. Uh, evangelists usually take one of two approaches. Either they're all lovey-dovey, hippie, lollipops, rainbows. Oh, God loves you. Just keep doing exactly what you want to do. We'll call these the hippies. Sorry, Jared. Those are the hippies. <laughs> or evangelists take the, the uh, what I like to refer to as the Jonathan Edwards approach. Jonathan Edwards was a preacher during one of the Great Awakenings in America. Uh, he was famous for a sermon called Sinners Over... Uh, the, uh, sorry, sinners in the hands of an angry God. That was the name of his, his trademark sermon, what he became known for, sinners in the hands of an angry God. And in that, he describes sinners, uh, if, you, if you imagine God's hand out like here, that each one of us is dangling from a thread over the fires of hell, and God has a pair of scissors, and he's coming for you. And he would preach this sermon, sinners in the hands of an angry God, and saying, if you don't do this, this is what's happening. You're going to burn in hell for all eternity. Ooh. And so evangelism takes one of these two paths, and I think both paths are correct when combined. Separately, neither of them are correct. Uh, everything in Scripture is about balance and about uh, uniformity. There is love and grace and forgiveness in the Bible, but there is also wrath and consequences for actions in the Bible. If you preach one or the other separately, then it's not a complete picture. 
Uh, it's like if you walk into a, a museum with an eye patch over one eye and you can only see half of a painting, you don't get the full picture. And so we need to talk about the wrath of God as much as we need to talk about the, the love of God. But what a lot of people don't do when they talk about the wrath of God is that they tell you that it has already been poured out on Christ. Book of Romans says those that are, uh, who are in Christ Jesus are no longer appointed to suffer the wrath of God. In, uh, in Jewish customs, um, there, are, there are four cups of God's, uh, four cups of God's sort of characteristics. There's a, a cup of mercy, of love, of justice. There's actually a fifth cup that only comes out once a year, and it's the cup of God's wrath. So if you ever skip forward to the book of Revelation and you're looking there uh, about these cups being poured out over people, and it's sort of a weird imagery, it's actually hearkening back to something that happens in the book of Revelation, that the wrath of God gets poured out from this cup. And it's, it's a very simple uh, illustration that there is a set amount of wrath, almost like a set amount of liquid can go into a cup. You have a cup, you stick it out, there's only a certain amount that you can put in it before it starts overflowing, God being perfect, it's never going to overflow because he's perfect. And so he has this wrath and it needs to be poured out. That wrath can either be poured out on you as a sinner or on Christ as our justification on the cross. Does that make sense? And so what we see here is still a picture of how Christ is the greater king and the greater God than Xerxes ever could be because the, the, the wrath of Xerxes abated after he'd lost his temper and had someone executed. But God instead has his wrath abated by sacrificing himself on the cross of Calvary. Amen? All right, moving on. Where are we? That's okay. So I've got an entire couple chapters to get through. That was just uh, the verse from last week that I needed to end on. All right. So uh, chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, King Xerxes gave to Esther of the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. So Esther has just inherited uh, everything that belonged to Haman, all of his lands, all of his crops, all of his uh, cattle, everything that made him wealthy. That all now goes to Esther. Esther just literally hit the jackpot. Uh, in every way that you can conceive of, the house that he lives in, remember, uh, Haman's entire family gets executed at the same time. So there is no longer any relatives of Haman alive. His entire family tree has been wiped out. Uh, continuing on in verse 3, I'm just going to summarize the story. Esther again goes before the king and says, great, you've saved my life, but what about the rest of my people? Mordecai comes in. Uh, finally, Mordecai gets up. This is more like the first time that Mordecai's ever got off, the, off his butt over by the king's gate, which is over here. Uh, Mordecai gets up and goes in front of the king. Even when the king's life was in danger, it doesn't say that Mordecai left the gate. He just sits there. It's annoying to me that he just sits there for the, almost the entire, entire story. He just sits there doing nothing but like making Esther feel bad for, for wanting to save herself. Anyway, other story. Uh, and so Mordecai finally gets up and he goes in front of the king and he says, King, this is what we should do. And what we read is a, is a complicated legal matter. Um, this legal matter is, that's not how you spell that, but that's okay. There should be an extra T in there. You can forgive me, whatever. How many A-type personalities is this annoying? Mater. I'm just saying there's only one person currently sitting in the congregation that knows how to go back and fix this, and she's not doing it, so you're all... You know how to put an extra T in there. Go on, go on. While I, while I talk, you go put the extra T in there. And we might move on before you get it right. So, here's the legal matter. In the Persian Empire, 
once the king has declared something, it can't be changed. Because, follow the logic, the king thinks that he is a god. Do gods make mistakes? No. Therefore, the king can't make a mistake. She can't do it. Let's just move on. Too late. We'll keep, get it off the screen so people stop being annoyed. All right. The legal matter. So the king's made this decree. All the Jews are going to die. That's the decree. It can't be changed. It bears the signet, of, uh, the signet seal of the king. And so uh, legally in the Persian Empire, this can't be changed. So this order has gone out. It's gone to the 127 satraps. It is uh, in every language of the Persian Empire. What are we going to do? And what the king does in response saying, I can't undo my own decree. I can't fix this without doing something else. And so what he does is he elevates Mordecai uh, into the position that Haman currently uh, used to occupy. This is really a bad story about how if you sit down for the entire narrative and then just pop up at the right moment, you suddenly inherit everything. It's a bad, it's a bad moral for people who want to just say, you know what, I'm going to be like Mordecai today and just do nothing. God will work it out for me. He will, but he won't be happy with you, Mordecai. I'm just saying, you're going to have to answer for sitting there. I'm really down on Mordecai today. I don't know why. I'm sorry. Um, and, and what we actually find in this particular story uh, is this concept that I... I this concept that somehow has uh, left not just the church but American culture in general is that actions have consequences. You do something, there are consequences to it. Now, just because there are consequences doesn't mean you haven't been forgiven. Um, I'll give you an example. I do something silly, which is prone to happen every now and then, with my wife. So, for instance, maybe she says something to me and I say, something sarcastic which I, I shouldn't be okay um, between us don't tell her I'm using this as an illustration Nikki was trying to get she was she'd been working out she was to get you know that that how when you work out you have those skin tight clothing she's she's trying she said that uh, she, she was in one of these things and she said that she had difficulty getting it off difficulty taking it off right this this shirt that she was in she wasn't moving, she wasn't doing anything, she was just sitting next to me saying, I have, tr and she just says, I have trouble taking this shirt off. And I looked at her and I said, are you trying to take it off now? <laughs> because she wasn't moving. And so in my mind, that was a completely legitimate question. Now to her, to her what that seemed like was I was questioning either her ability to take a shirt off or maybe her intelligence. I wasn't, I was just trying to get clarification in my own defense. However, it was interpreted uh, thus. Gentlemen, if you are married, that is a mistake. <laughs> the correct answer, I was informed, should have been to ask, how can I help you with that? That should have been the correct response. Okay. Now, I know for a fact that my wife has forgiven me for that mistake. However, it didn't mean that there weren't consequences later that <laughs> evening. In case you're all wondering, my couch is incredibly comfortable. <laughs> I, I'm joking. We have, we have four bedrooms in our house. I would use one of those. Come on. Uh, sometimes our consequences have actions. And while sometimes our sin has consequences that we have to face. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes there aren't the, the consequences aren't readily 
available and you've been forgiven of your sin by a very great and loving and forgiving God, but sometimes there are those consequences. And we do a disservice to ourselves, to the church at large, when we act like if a person who is living in a state of sin, habitual, day after day, week after week, sin, comes to know Jesus, gets saved, gets forgiven, and then we say, but don't worry, also the consequences you don't have to face, you don't have to suffer. Uh, Simple example, you can go out and commit murder, you can shoot a person. Jesus can forgive you of that sin. We know that because there are murderers throughout the entire scriptures. Uh, Moses was a murderer. David was a murderer. And David was described as a man after God's own heart. There is forgiveness for those sins, but there are still consequences for them. And too often what we do is we say when someone is forgiven of sin, then they're also forgiven of the consequences, which isn't necessarily true. And so there are consequences in this story For the Jews, the king made a really bad and rash decision. He was paid a large amount of gold to murder an entire ethnic group. And because he is the king, because his word is law, he can do nothing about it. And so we find out that actions have consequences. And then we we, we see this in verse 11. The edict was saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend themselves, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed forces of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. And on that day, throughout all of the provinces of King Xerxes, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Ada. And so there's that line there that is included. Children and women included. And so what we really need to briefly talk about is some of the difficult parts of the Bible. If you were a a brand new Christian, you've never picked up the Bible. If you'd never been to a hotel room and someone called Gideon had got there before you and you'd never encountered the biblical narrative, if you pick it up for the very first time, there are some difficult bits in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, especially in the first half of the Old Testament. When you get into some of the narrative stories, uh, when you have... um, When you have Joshua entering the land of Canaan, going over to the city of Jericho, he is told to kill every man, woman, child, and goat, and donkey. Goats and donkeys. There are four goats and donkeys. There's a reason for it. There's a reason for everything that God commands in the Bible. But if you don't know the perspective of Scripture, sometimes when you step back, or, or rather when you don't step back and you just read the story, sometimes you don't get the full picture. Uh, so in the I- example of Joshua, um, it may seem like God is just saying, you know what, just kill everyone, I'm done. Let's, let's just get it over with. And that doesn't seem like the actions of a merciful God. Uh, Exodus describes God as slow to anger and just. It doesn't sound just if, if Joshua has just shown up in the land of Canaan and now he has to kill every man, woman, child, donkey, and goat. I feel sorry for the goats, what can I say? What you don't read, if you just read this one particular story, is you might not connect that in the book of Genesis, some 400 years earlier, uh, God says to Abraham, uh, Abraham, I'm going to make your people a mighty nation. I'm going to do this wonderful thing through you. The world is going to be blessed through you. Your generations are going to bless the entire world. Stars in the sky and grain in the sand. Everything's going to be great. But you're not doing it now. I need to give you 400 years so the people in the land that you will possess have the time to repent. 
And so then what happens is Abraham's descendants go into Egypt for 400 years of captivity, and you can read that uh, uh, in the story of uh, Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, wonderful musical. Uh, you read that in that story, they stayed in Egypt for 400 years. In that 400 years was given so the people of the land of Canaan had a chance to repent. God gave them 400 years to repent, and they didn't. The people in the land of Canaan were horrible people. They, they sacrificed each other on altars to their pagan gods. They engaged in sexual relations as, uh, as part of worship in their temples. They killed and sacrificed infants six months old on altars to their pagan gods, burning them alive. These were not nice people. And what God knew uh, is if the Israelites came into the land of Canaan and possessed the land of Canaan then, uh, and didn't wipe out those people, then the, their, their own uh, Israelite, the way that they lived, their lifestyle was going to get infected by that pagan idolatry and lifestyle. And when the people of Israel went in, they started really good. They started doing everything that God commanded them, but they stopped and they let some of the Canaanites live. And you have 500 years after that, Solomon in his temple that he had built to worship God, sacrificing children in his own temple. And so, so some of the t sometimes when you read a story in Scripture that says, you need to, to, to look at this, you need to understand this, you actually need to step back and read the entire scope of Scripture for that one story to make sense. All of Scripture is God-breathed and profitable, but more than that, all of Scripture is interconnected. There is not one book of the Bible that isn't referenced somewhere else in the grand scheme of things. That there isn't allegories, that there isn't foreshadowing. The, the authors of the Bible... Uh, were incredibly gifted in linking stories one to the other through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Our next sermon series is going to be through the book of Ruth. After Ruth, we're going to be doing something that is different for me. We're not going to be going exegetically through a book of the Bible. We're going to be going through something called biblical patterns in narrative. I haven't fully written it yet, which is why we're not doing it next. But it's going to show you how these stories match up one with another week in, week out, so you can see that the Bible is not just individual stories collected, but is instead one giant story that is interconnected. And so we're here saying that there is a difficult part in the Bible. The king, who is not a perfect king, gives, uh, gives Mordecai permission to kill women and children. We don't know how many women and children were killed because they weren't reported. Later on in the story, it'll say that over 500 men were killed on this day by the Jews. Women and children are not recorded. But there's a special little line in there that I'm not sure if you, you picked up on. Above that line, to annihilate any armed forces. And so the caveat to this particular attack was you're allowed to defend yourself from people who are attacking you which means any Jew that killed a woman and child was doing so in self-defense. And this brings up a very interesting point, is sometimes we look at children and we think, man, they're completely innocent. Uh, but if you've ever met a two-year-old, <laughs> ever, any, anyone have a t had a two-year-old in their life at any point in their life? Okay. I've got a niece and nephew. When my nephew was two, he knew exactly four words. Yes, no, dinosaur, dinosaur and <laughs> those were his four words he's two he has good parents so I know they didn't teach him how to go 
It was inherent in his nature. Sometimes kids can be evil. I'm just saying, by the grace of God and through, through Christian education and enlightenment, they can get a little, they can get better. But sometimes kids can be mean. Sometimes kids can be horrible. I'm absolutely positive that this was put in because there were some children who were so corrupted by evil and sin that they decided to pick up a sword and they were like, you know what, we could kill some people. This is going to be fun. Because it happened. If you've ever seen kids uh, killing animals, well, they take a frog and they torture it, they pull their legs off, take a fly and pluck the wings off. Uh, people have an inherent nature and ability to do evil and sometimes we think that children are somehow spared of that and they're not. Children can be just as bad as the rest of us. Now I really brought you down, didn't I? <laughs> and like so many things, there's a contrast here. It brings you down, but then it gives you this line here in verse 16. The Jews had light and gladness and joy for killing men, women, and children. That was not what their joy was. Their joy was not in the fact that they had to do something. The joy was in the fact that God had saved them. Uh, there's, a, there's a difference there, and you need to understand that difference. I don't believe the Jews here were rejoicing in the fact they had to defend themselves. I mean, uh, do you know anyone who, who gets attacked on the street? Someone comes up to them and starts throwing punches, and they're able to defend themselves. And it's like, that was a joy. I was able to throw them my right hook. It was great. Maybe if you're a freak, but no. I mean... That's not what the joy is. The joy here that the Jews are feeling in every province, in every city, wherever the king's command and the edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples, and I love this last line, many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. They declared themselves Jews. Well, you know what? Um, I'm afraid of them. They are hey, I'm Jew now. Hanukkah. It'll be great. Anyway, they were joyful because once again, in the history of Scripture, in the narrative history of the Jewish people, God had stepped up. They went one day facing certain annihilation and death of their entire, entire race to it flipping on its head and instead they get to be saved. And so they rejoiced and they were glad and they had a party. That party is still celebrated today in the festival of Purim. They celebrated gladness and joy. The last two chapters of the book of Esther records uh, what happened when this day occurred. The day occurred, some people still went to follow the edict. They attacked the Jews and the Jews defended themselves and killed 500 people. This was over 127 satraps over the entire known world. So this was, when you consider 500 people, that's actually not that great in this particular large expanse of, uh, of what we're talking about here. And then what the Jews did is those people that they killed, they were actually legally then allowed to inherit the money. And so the Jews throughout the entire empire suddenly had uh, prosperity. Their lives went from menial hard work and labor to receiving riches and benefits, uh, not because of them. And then it says that Mordecai was elevated into that number two position 
that Haman used to occupy, that he was over the 127 satraps, that he was the most important person other than the king in the entire empire. And so what you see here illustrated is something very, very simple. For those who are in the will of God, there are great joys and rewards for doing what is right. Those rewards are not often physical. I'm not saying that if you love Jesus, you're going to finally have a full bank account. It would be nice, but it's not going to happen instantly. But what happens is that you, you become a Christian and then there is joy. You become a Christian and suddenly you can experience the great gifts of God. And I truly believe that the greatest of those gifts is the fact that your sin has been forgiven and the wrath of God which was allocated to you has instead been poured out or abated upon Jesus Christ. And that's the book of Esther. This book which shows the greatness of God without mentioning his name. That shows you how God provides for his people without anyone even praying to him. That shows God intervening in his sovereign hand without a prophet, without a miracle. That's our God, and he is great. Amen? I'm going to invite up, well, no, our CSM for our closing benediction.